Hey, good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Uh, we are so glad to be here with you this morning and with our studio audience here as well. Great to see all your faces. My name is Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship. Uh, in case you're wondering, uh, I am not Josh Broccolo, uh, but Josh is here. In fact, Josh, come on up here. I think we just need to set the record straight uh, so that everyone can tell who we are. This here is Josh Broccolo. He, he is the chief executive officer of everything technical here at our church. So that's Josh. I'm just a pastor. I have two things I have to do. I have to show up and look pretty. And, and people tell me I'm only good at half my job. So you're going to have to figure that one out. Josh, that's Josh. You'll see him again in the future. But there's been uh, confusion about that in the past. I'm not sure why, why we look so much alike. Hey, if you're new with us, uh, you might be stepping into a new series we started last week called Awake. Uh, and this series is based out of the, the book of Ephesians, a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus in a city uh, that was a difficult and messed up and conglomeration of all kinds of different things that were going on there. And he was speaking a, a truth uh, that was so important for them to hear, that's so important for us to hear even today, is we live in very difficult and confusing times. And what's beautiful about this one book is it probably encapsulates the gospel as concisely and perfectly as any book in the Bible uh, and what that means. And today in particular, uh, we're going to look at a part of it, the very beginning of it in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, that really hits on the heart of this whole thing. In fact, you could say that this is a 40,000-foot view of what the gospel is. And there's lots of confusion about the gospel and what exactly it is. And the word itself just means good news. And that's what it is. It's simply good news. It's telling us something that has happened uh, for us. And that's the heart of this passage. It's not what we have to do. It's not what it's supposed to bring about, even though it has all kinds of results and consequences of it. And we're going to see that as we get later into the book. But the gospel itself is just that. It's news. It's not something we do. It's something that's been done and been proclaimed to us. So it's so important that in these opening statements we see this, and there's no greater passage in the Bible that I think comprehensively covers this concept uh, like these first handful of verses in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 14 today as Paul begins this letter. Uh, we're also going to pop those up on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible or are, are not comfortable finding where some of these places are in the Bible, you can follow right along with us and see exactly what we're going to talk about. But here's what I think this passage is talking about. It's going to answer three questions for us that are really important. Three questions that are important both for us as Christians and also for a person who's investigating Christianity and wondering what exactly is this faith, this religion, so to speak, all about. And these are the three questions that this passage answers. The first is, what has God done for us? What has God done for us? Why would we want to worship this God? Why is he someone we would want to pursue and know and understand? And we're going to see that in a big picture. Uh, what has God done for us? Secondly is, how did he do it? How did God accomplish these things for us? And then finally, the last question is kind of our response to it, or at least we're going to see how the people in Ephesus responded, is how can I receive uh, what God has done for me? So what has God done? 
How did he do it? And, and how can I possibly receive what it is that he's done for us? So Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start with that first section, verses 3 through 6, to talk about what God has done for us. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. That's a summary statement. That basically says everything that we're going to talk about today. The rest of these verses are just fleshing that out and telling us what are these blessings and how did God accomplish them for us in life. So he says right away in verse 4, says, For he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. So God has chosen us to be perfected, to be holy, to be blameless in love before him. It says he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So here's the first thing we want to see in this passage. The first thing Paul's trying to to teach us is this simple concept here is that God gives us everything we need because he's sovereign and good. God gives us everything that we need because he's sovereign and good. Now, I use some very careful words in this statement to avoid some confusion. I didn't say God gives us everything that we want because he's sovereign and good. And unfortunately, that's often how we approach God today. We approach God probably more like uh, these fairy tales or stories we've read about coming along a beach or in the sand and seeing this little genie lamp, and we find the genie lamp, and we rub the lamp, and, and out comes this phenomenally, infinitely powerful being, which I've always thought was strange uh, for two reasons. One is, if this being is so powerful that it can grant any wish that you want, why can't it even get out of the little lamp? I mean, it has all this power, but it can't get out of the lamp. The other thing I think is funny is it can't do anything unless we ask it to, to give us some kind of wish. And it made me think, and we probably should think about this, it's kind of obvious, but There's no such thing as a genie in a lamp. Like, we've created this from our imaginations because it's illogically impossible to have something with that kind of power that's stuck inside a lamp and that can only respond to our wishes. But it really communicates a lot about how we approach God. That even if there was a sovereign God, and I believe there is, and if he was good, we would rather have something more like a genie, and that's really what we buck up against probably more so than anything else. And it's why, as we look at this, why these two things are absolutely imperative, that God is both sovereign, he's powerful, and he's good. In fact, that's what we see in this passage. Two things that God, and what he's done for us, reveals about himself. He is sovereign, he is almighty over all things, and he is good. Both of these traits are vitally important, and we see that in this passage. Look at some of these words that are used. It says, he chose, he predestined, and he did so according to his will. He didn't ask for my counsel. He didn't ask for your counsel. He did it according to his will, which is a beautiful thing when we realize how good God is. 
Now, let's, let's address some confusion here that often comes up when we talk about God's sovereignty or his almighty power. Is God's absolute sovereignty does not require that we're some kind of deterministic robots. There's all kinds of wrong thoughts around those things that think, oh, if God's absolutely sovereign, then we just have to be robots that don't have the ability to make any choices and we're just like running through something like he's a puppeteer and he's moving people along. That's absolutely not true. In fact, nowhere does the Bible say that's the case. In fact, the very premise of the Bible, which if you've read any parts of the Bible, there are hundreds and thousands of commands in the Bible. And a command is something that's calling someone else to make a choice to either do this or do that. So the whole Bible contradicts this view that we're deterministic. But at the same time, the Bible very clearly communicates that God is sovereign over all these things. God has created a universe in which these two things can somehow coexist. And the fact that you and I can't fully logically understand it doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that we're not God and we just got to get over it. Okay, that's, that's the reality of it, that God can create things that we can't fully understand. And the problem is, is we try to logically run to one side or the other rather than embracing the beauty of this tension in a being who's so much bigger than us. That's why he's God and we're not. But here's the other side of this, and I think these two always have to go together and they're so important. That not as only is God sovereign in this process, which we're going to see is a good thing, but God is good. And these two things are so important that they're linked together, and Paul is teaching us that in this passage. Look at how we see he's good in this passage. We see three ways in which he shows that he is good, that his choosing and his predestination is for all these good things, that we would be holy and blameless in love that we would be adopted as his children. And it's according to the good pleasure of his will, not the evil pleasure of his will or the masochistic pleasure of his will. Look at all these good things that, that we see God's sovereignty is bringing about. It's so important that we keep these things together. You see, if God is not good, then we can never feel safe within his sovereign plan. But if he is good, if he is perfect goodness, then there's nothing greater than the knowledge that he's absolutely sovereign over all things. Because then we know that he can bring about good in every situation. If God's not sovereign, then it almost doesn't matter that he's good. Because if he's not sovereign, then there's a chance that evil or bad could ultimately prevail. And, and what does that mean for us? There's very little hope in that at all. See, both are absolutely necessary for this to be good news. And whenever we diminish one, whenever we diminish God's sovereignty, we disrespect God. Whenever we diminish God's goodness, we do harm to other people. Think about that, how both of those are absolutely necessary. And whenever we wrongly see either one of them, we either disrespect who God is or we bring harm to other people by not believing that God is good. See, if he's not sovereign, he can't guarantee the assurance of his promises. And if he's not good, he can't assure the quality of his promises. This is why no parent or spouse or political leader or spiritual leader or government leader has ever been able to perfectly follow through on the promises that they make. It's right here. 
because no person or political leader or parent or spouse or anyone is sovereign and good, perfectly sovereign and perfectly good. We can make promises to our kids about the things we think are going to come true in their life or we're going to offer them, but guess what? Life happens sometimes in a way that does not allow us to accomplish that. And sometimes we do things that just aren't good because we're not good. And the same is true with political leaders or, or government leaders or spiritual leaders. The reason that we don't like to follow or, or buck against authority is not because authority is bad. It's because people in authority are not perfectly sovereign and good at the same time. One or the other is always missing. In fact, both often are. It's why we have a lot of the riots and things going on now, because there's people that are in sovereign positions to make decisions that aren't all good. And so what happens is people rebel against that. But here's the problem. We rebel against it, not because we're, well, we say we don't want any sovereign power, but ultimately in our rebellion, you know what we're doing? Is we're trying to take over the sovereign power that we just got done saying is not good. And when we take it over, we do the exact same thing. Our badness and our lack of sovereignty continues to express itself over and over again in society. And that's the broken world we live in. So church, this is good news. The fact that there is someone who is sovereign and he's good is incredible news because the world has been desperate for this for all of creation. You see, our struggle with God's sovereignty is really a struggle with his goodness. Think about that for a moment. It's not his sovereignty that's really a problem for us. It's us not believing that he's truly good. And if we really knew how good he is, we would never struggle with how sovereign he is. We struggle with his sovereignty because ultimately in our broken, fallen, sinful hearts, we still believe we can make better choices than God. Think about that for a moment. It's the very struggle that's gotten all of humanity into this predicament that we're in right now. Adam and Eve, they didn't trust God's goodness from the very beginning. They didn't believe his sovereignty in creating things the way they were and, and in the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They mistrusted his goodness. They doubted it when they were tempted by Satan to think, uh, uh, is it really bad that we have the knowledge of good and evil? Is eating from this tree really a bad thing? They doubted God's goodness, and as a result, they challenged his sovereignty. And we've been doing the exact same thing ever since that time. In fact, here's what's funny. We demand as humans more freedom. We don't want to be under the sovereign control of anyone. So we demand more freedom. And then when we experience the results of that freedom, you know what we do? We blame the very ones that we wanted the freedom from. That's exactly what we saw in Adam and Eve's life. When, when all hell broke loose, literally, after that took place, you know what Adam did? You know what his first words were in Genesis 3? When God said, Adam, what did you do? He said, well, this woman that you gave me Adam wanted the freedom, he wanted the sovereignty, but he didn't have the goodness to manage it. And when he got what he wanted, suddenly he wanted to blame someone else. He didn't want to accept responsibility. And when God turned to the woman, the woman said, well, that serpent, he tempted me. This is humanity. This is the brokenness of our world. And so when Paul speaks into the brokenness of this world, 
that there is a sovereign God who is perfectly good. Church, this is good news. People, this is good news because we've been looking for this for all of time. Here's something I want you to say just to to ponder and to wrestle with this week. Uh, God is way more sovereign than I can understand. Just say that with me. God is way more sovereign than I can understand. And here's our side. I am way more responsible than I want to accept. I am way more responsible than I want to accept. Walk this week with those two things in mind. God is way more sovereign than I can fully understand. And I am way more responsible than I fully want to accept. You don't need to fully understand or be able to explain it to believe it and trust it. When you accept God's goodness, you'll be comforted and carried along by His sovereignty. But when you reject God's goodness, you'll be confronted and ultimately condemned by His sovereignty. Yeah, but Chad, how can I really be sure that God's sovereignty is good for me? You know, you know I'm so glad you asked that question. Because that's exactly what the next section of this passage is all about. Is, is there are so many examples in people's lives recorded in the Bible that show God's sovereignty and being good for them. And I could list off hundreds of them. But there's no one's life that's more perfect at demonstrating this than the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the second question we have. is If, if God has done this great work for us, how did He go about doing it? How can I know for sure that He's really done this for us? And this next section tells us that and where it came about. It says in verse 7, In Him, this is talking about the ending of that last verse, in the beloved is what was left with. Beloved meaning the person of Jesus Christ. So when you see Him in this section, it's talking about Jesus. It says, In Jesus or Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace that He richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will. So this is the second thing. The first is redemption and forgiveness. We're going to see that. Next, He makes known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He purposed in Christ. See, it's good pleasure again that He purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. He's uniting everything on earth that we have created divisions and and divides here on the earth. He's bringing them back together in Christ. He says, in Him we also have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the One who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of His will. That's God. He's working everything out to the purpose of His will, His good will, so that we who are already, who've already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to His glory. So how did God do this? Here's a real simple statement, and we're going we're to walk through this passage a little bit to see the how. God provided these blessings through Jesus Christ. So God is, has given us everything that we need, every blessing that we need here in the heavenlies. And He's done so through the person of Jesus Christ. That's why I want to take some time to focus on Jesus' life. It's so important. 
In fact, I want you to see even in the story that the way God brought this about in Jesus Christ is consistent with what we just learned about the gospel in these previous verses, that God is sovereign and that God is good. Because listen what it says in the book of Acts as the, the early followers of Jesus were recording. This is what they had just seen historically. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is a historian. He's recording the actual events that took place. And in Acts chapter 2, this is what he records. It took place. It fell Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Now watch how he blends both God's sovereignty and our responsibility together in this next passage. It says, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, there's God's sovereignty, God sent him and Jesus came with this determined plan to save human beings. He says, no, that happened. He says, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. There's man's responsibility. We did this to him. We made choices to nail Jesus, to, to persecute him, to judge him wrongly. Humans did that. They made those choices. Even though God in his sovereignty determined that that would happen, we chose and brought it about. That's that mystery of those two things together. And it says God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. So that's the story, the history of what happened. But what God was doing in that, he explains in these verses. And the first thing we see in here is that he redeemed and forgave us in Christ to make us holy and blameless. Do you see that in here? It says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his trespasses. That's what verse 7 says. He forgave us. He makes us holy and blameless. See, God only sees one category of humanity, sinful. There's just one category. There's not races, there's not ethnicities. Even though those are true people who have grown up in different cultures and we're different in that way, when God looks down at humanity, he sees one category, sinful. And he came to redeem that people. And even as we saw earlier, to unite them all into one family that's a family that's received these blessings that he sovereignly and good in his character has brought to give to us. But what does redemption mean? Redemption is one of these words that we don't use a whole lot anymore. But maybe you can go back in history, some of you that are a little older than Josh and more like my age, right? We have some some maybe ways we can remember how redemption was used. I remember as a kid growing up uh, when Coke uh, Coca-Cola was sold in uh, little glass bottles. Now you can still see that a little bit more, but it was a lot more common back then. And whenever you bought those bottles of Coke, you paid a little bit more for that Coke than just the Coke itself because the bottle itself, they wanted you to return to them. So you might pay a nickel or a dime extra for that bottle to get the Coke that was in it and in the bottle. And then the way you got your dime back that you paid for that is you brought it back to the store and you redeemed that bottle. Not really the bottle, you redeemed your dime. Right? That person had your dime or your nickel and the way you got it back was giving them the bottle back and it redeemed that nickel and you could put that thing back in your pocket and go buy something else. At least back then you could, right? You can't get anything for a nickel nowadays. Maybe someone's thoughts, right? 
bad joke, I know. I'm also known as the pastor of dad jokes, all right? So run with that one. So here we see God redeemed us, but this, this concept was incredibly po uh, poignant within Paul's context, this Roman context of that time, because in Roman times, there was all kinds of slavery that took place that was very different than the slavery that we've experienced in the history of our country. A slave in Paul's time was predominantly a slave because of a war that took place, or the other way you could become a slave was economically meaning when someone basically misused all the resources that they had and became broke in their business or they ran uh, their property into the ground or whatever, there was no chapter 11 bankruptcy back then. No one would come and bail you out, no laws that protected you. You were flat broke and you were basically on the verge of death if you were in that spot. So what people would do is they would sell themselves into slavery Meaning, I'll come and serve this man that has more resources. I will come and live in your home. I'll work for you just so that you can provide for me so that I don't basically die. I'm flat broke. And they would sell themselves into that slavery. And what you could do in that society is if, say, you had a, a cousin or a brother that was pretty well off, that lived maybe just in the town next door or whatever, once they heard about that, if they really loved you, you know what they could do? They could come over and they could redeem you from that person that you'd sold yourself into slavery based on whatever your agreement was. They could come and make a payment to them and bring you back into freedom and help you get set back up in life. Redemption. That's what Paul is using here. And that's what he's saying God has done for us. See, we've been sold into a slavery of sin. The reason our sovereignty and our goodness never works in this world is because we're broken. We, we've been sold into slavery from the very first decision that Adam and Eve made in the garden. And that's been our fate. And God has said He has redeemed us back. He's bought us back through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, just listen to some of these passages where he's redeemed us for forgiveness. These are just a handful of them that are all over in the scriptures. Romans 5.8 says, God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, enslaved, Christ died for us. How about this one? Just a little bit further down in that same chapter, it says, for just as through one man's disobedience, Paul's talking about Adam, how that led us into this slavery, just as through one man's disobedience, the many, all of us have been made sinners because we come from Adam, so also through one man's obedience, which he's talking about Jesus here, the many will be made righteous. Meaning we're restored through this one man, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, meaning God the Father, made the one, referring to Jesus, so God the Father made Jesus who did not know sin. Jesus was without sin, the only man, to become sin for us. Meaning, He took the consequences of our sin for us so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We get the consequences of Jesus' perfect life and he gets the consequences of our sinfulness. That's redemption. He redeemed us out of our slavery and has set us right before God. Church, that's good news. That's the gospel that this sovereign God, this sovereign good God has set in place and his son came and accomplished for us. 
This passage is is, uh, several hundred years historically older than Jesus. Many might say, well, well, these passages, people just wrote them after the fact, and they're just saying what Jesus did. Well, Isaiah says this hundreds of years, even before Jesus came. He writes this about Jesus. It says in Isaiah 53, 5, but he, Jesus, was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, Punishment for our peace was on Him, and we are healed by His wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished Him, Jesus, for the iniquity of us all. God brought His justice down on Jesus, and Jesus willingly accepted it to redeem you and me and any sinner who will receive this gift. Church, That's good news. That's great news. That's the picture of what Paul is setting up here for all of us and that this whole book is going to tell us more about. So that's his redemption and forgiveness. But it also says he adopted us as children, granting us a present purpose and a future inheritance. So it says this in this passage, that he adopted us and, and he has an inheritance for us. He's using these terms that were so meaningful in Paul's day Uh, and are truly meaningful today, even though they may not connect in our culture in the same way. But in Roman culture, uh, adoption happened actually quite frequently, and even older children were adopted. And typically for two reasons they were adopted. One is if a couple was not able to have children, they might have a business and property, and they wanted an heir to pass that down to. And if they didn't have someone, they would often adopt someone and bring them into their family and teach them the family trade. And then that person would become the heir of their, of their business and all those kinds of things. But that adoption uh, happened uh, in a number of different ways. It brought legal rights into that person's life. They now became the heir of that family's possessions. So that is one reason maybe they didn't have children. The other reason is if all their children kind of went wayward and took off in another direction and they didn't want to hand down this business and this property to children who were walking in a different will or a different plan than theirs, they would adopt someone who agreed with their plan and wanted to carry it forward. And again, that person would have legal rights to everything that they owned. And they would be taught about that business and have a plan, a will that was good for them to provide and to bless them going forward. And this is the picture that Paul uses for us. God's not just saying, hey, let me just wipe out your sins. Now I'm just going to leave you on your own again. No, he has brought us into his family in love. He has given us a a plan and a purpose according to the mystery that He's revealing in the Gospel, saying, hey, Chad, hey, Joe, hey, Lisa, I want you to be part of my plan. I want you to have purpose in your life. I want you to bring something to this broken world that has meaning that far surpasses any meaning you can find in this temporal world. That's how good God is. He doesn't just want us as slaves. He doesn't just want us as workers. He adopts us as children, sons and daughters. And He gives us purpose in life and a guaranteed inheritance that exceeds anything we could possibly acquire in this world. Do you realize that Jesus was the richest man to ever walk the earth? Think about that. He was God. He, he 
created all things. He was the richest man to ever walk the earth, but he never used his wealth to gain special privilege nor to isolate himself from the poor. You can read about that. This is in historical records. Jesus was the most righteous man to ever live. The Bible says he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Yet he never used his righteousness to isolate or to separate himself from sinners. Jesus was the most powerful man to ever live, but not once did he use his power to oppress or take advantage of people who were different from him. He rebuked the rich, the self-righteous and powerful who thought their wealth or their self-righteousness or their power made them better than others. And he welcomed those who were poor, powerless, and sinful by inviting them into his kingdom. In fact, one of the famous phrases that Jesus said was this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, it's easy to know what Jesus did. We can just open this book and know what he did. But do we really know him? Or do we just know about him? Do we know that he lived in earthly poverty so that he could point us to a greater riches and inheritance that exceeds anything we could possibly acquire in this world? Do we know that? Or do we cling so tightly to the stuff in this world as if this is as good as it gets? Do we know that he lived like he was powerless, that he suffered like he was powerless because he wanted to point us to a power that could never be lost or would never be used to harm others? Do we know that he, he died like a sinner? <laughs> and not just any sinner because all sinners die the bible tells us we all have sinned and, and all of us are going to die like, like that's the one thing that is a hundred percent in all of history everyone dies we all know that and the bible tells us it's because of sin but but some of us die in our homes some die in accidents some die in hospitals some die on the battlefield some some die alone all of us die because we're sinners however only the worst of sinners in our society die because of corporal punishment. That's what Jesus experienced. He lived as a perfect sinless man, and yet he died as if he was the worst of sinners. Do you know why he was willing to do that? Because he came to change the worst of sinners and treat them and forgive them and redeem them so that they could live and be treated like they were sinless and blameless in love before this sovereign, loving, good God. You see, we can know about Jesus, but until you know Him and know what He's done, you'll never fully understand how sovereign and powerful God is and how good He is at the same time. So how could I receive this? How, how can I be part of this kind of family? 
I mean, that's exactly where Paul ends this section, this beautiful section on the gospel, because it's exactly what was happening in Ephesus, a place that would be the last place you would ever think the gospel would be effective. It was about as worldly and sinful and messed up and mixed up a place as you could ever imagine. 50 different temples to 50 different gods, all kinds of prostitution and and cultic prostitution around these religions, economic stuff that was going on in that city as a port city that is more shameful than anything you could probably even imagine today. And yet in the midst of that mess, Paul's bringing this good news. In fact, those people were receiving it and their lives were being changed. And and here's exactly how. In verses 13 and 14, Paul says this, In Him, again in Jesus, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When were you sealed with Him? When did you receive this person of God in our lives? It says, When you heard the word of truth, which he says is the gospel, this good news that I just talked about, of your salvation, and when you believed. When you heard it, and when you believed. It says the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. This is my last little point for us. It's simply this. I receive God's blessings by trusting in Jesus Christ. It sounds so simple. In fact, it's embarrassingly simple because you and I don't do a thing. That's what's so transformational about it. That's what's so incredible about it. It's good news because it's announced that this has been done for you. You just receive it. Just accept it. That's what changes you. That's what transforms you. It's this down payment that God puts into our lives of the Holy Spirit that changes us. It's not us changing so that God will somehow adopt us. It's receiving and accepting what Jesus Christ did for you and for me as broken, fallen sinners. And in that, He puts a little bit of Him in our lives. In fact, I love this. This is so incredible. This word used of the Holy Spirit that is our down payment, that's our escrow or our earnest money. If you've ever bought a home, we bought a home when we moved up here a couple years ago. We had to put earnest money down. It's a certain percentage of the cost of the home. And here's what happens with earnest money. We give them this money, we give it to the owner, and we promise we're going to purchase and follow through on the contract and buy the house. But guess what? If we bail out last minute, if we find something out we don't like, and we bail out, we lose the earnest money. That's what that promise is. And God's saying, my Holy Spirit is my earnest money in you. Meaning, if I don't finish this, if I don't bring you to completion, if you don't receive this inheritance that I've just talked about, and you don't fully come into my family and experience the new heavens and the new earth like I promised, if I don't follow through on that promise of my down payment, guess what? God loses the Holy Spirit. Like, what does that mean? That basically means God would have to be split apart. Impossible to do for a sovereign, holy, perfect God. For Him to not follow through on His promise. That's His guarantee to you and to me. So what? So what does that mean? Like, Chad, you haven't told me anything that I need to do. You haven't told me all the things I have to now do to to earn or be worthy of this gospel because there is nothing. 
God has done it all. And until we get that, we'll never experience the transformation that comes about when God begins to change us. So let me ask you something personal, and we'll close on just these thoughts. What do you perceive as the greatest blessing or possible blessing in your life? Because Paul says, blessed be this God who has done this. It changed Paul's life forever. But what about you and me? What do you perceive to be your greatest blessing? Is it a person? Is it a career, your, your bank account, your home, your hobbies, your children, your social status, your influence, or even your church? See, as long as something exists in your life that you perceive is a greater blessing than what Paul says is promised to us by God in this passage, then you'll protect that. You'll protect that earthly blessing in any way you possibly can. And you will alienate, you'll segregate, you'll isolate, and you'll even violate any person or any group of people who you perceive threaten that blessing in your life. It's why Jesus could so humbly offer himself to the most wretched and evil of people. Because there is no threat to what his greatest blessing was. So he could love absolutely freely. What power is it in your life, in this present life that you're clinging to that for you is a greater blessing than these blessings God has given. What is it you're clinging to that, that causes you to feel like you need to push other people away that threaten it? Or segregate yourself or alienate yourself from those who, who make you feel vulnerable to losing that earthly power? What riches are you clinging to that have prevented you from fully experiencing the reality of the inheritance that is yours in Christ Jesus? What riches are you so protecting that it's caused you to not be able to live by certain people who might threaten it, not be able to associate with certain people or certain groups of people who might be a threat to your earthly wealth? And so you do what we always do. We wrongly protect and we cling to things at the detriment of others instead of releasing them in a way that allows us to use them to share these riches, to share these blessings that God has given us as our purpose in our life, to make as many people as rich as possible in God's riches. I don't know what it is, but I think you do. My prayer for us as a church, my prayer for myself, because I'm still in process with this, that I would be so overwhelmed with the riches of God's goodness, of His gospel message that He lavished on us in the heavens, meaning they're there, they're reserved, and when He comes back, He will bring them all untouched by anything in this world. That's where our blessings exist now, but they're coming. 
I want to so trust in those and, and long for those and, and rejoice in those and praise Him in those gifts and those blessings that nothing in this world could keep me from sharing this good news with the most broken of people. Let's pray. Father God, this is an incredible truth. This is an amazing, an amazing gift. One that exceeds anything we could possibly fathom here in this earth. And yet, Lord, we're, we're, so, we're so wrapped up in this world, it's so hard for us to see anything outside of our experience in this teeny tiny little ball of dirt that's just a sliver in your phenomenal universe. Even that, Lord, points to us knowing there's something out there that's so much bigger than us. And yet we'll quabble over your sovereignty and your goodness and miss the whole point of this good news, of this incredible grace that you have lavished on us in Christ Jesus. Lord, can we set aside these things that we may just not ever understand and focus our energy on what's right before us? Broken homes, broken cities, broken governments, broken leaders, broken churches, all because we're so caught up in our silly little arguments instead of celebrating the riches of your glory and your goodness and your grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us. But please don't give up on us. We're your church. We're your body. Help us be who you called us to be when we fully embrace the beauty of this message. We love you. We praise you. Not nearly as much as you deserve. But you are worthy in spite of us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.